What you're about to hear is part two of a multi-part series. Might be worth your time to download part one if you happen to miss that or don't know this story. Without further delay, though, Ghosts of the Ostfront, part two. December 7th, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. It's hardcore history. When Adolf Hitler unleashed the German Wehrmacht on the Soviet Union on June 22nd, 1941, in the greatest surprise attack in world history, he was undertaking the greatest gamble of his career, maybe one of the greatest gambles any world leader has ever taken. And Adolf Hitler was a great gambler. If you look at his career, everything from the Munich Beer Hall Putsch to the ultimatums over places like Czechoslovakia to the decision to invade France, which many of his generals thought ludicrous. He had been a very successful gambler, and even in the cases where he had failed, the consequences had been light. You know, you try to overthrow the Weimar government, and the worst thing that happens to you is you get a couple of years in prison. That encourages further gambling down the road. His Operation Barbarossa against the Soviet Union was the greatest gamble of his career. And it was a gamble because it was based on two assumptions. And if those assumptions were wrong, he was going to lose. One assumption was that the Soviet Union was, as he thought it, a rickety shack. He said many times, we have but to kick in the door and the whole rotting structure will come tumbling down. That's exactly what happened in the First World War when German victories in places like Tannenberg had rocked the czarist Russian regime to the point where it did fall apart like a rotting structure. Hitler saw the likelihood of that happening again as being high. The other assumption was that this was a country of subhumans, of Slavic peoples who were only fit to be ruled over by the master race, the German Aryans that were completely wrapped up into Hitler's race and blood theories. And not only were they subhumans, but they were controlled and ruled by Jewish Bolsheviks who also would provide a less than adequate leadership to, you know, put up any sort of a struggle to the conquering German armies. Now, if either one of those assumptions proves wrong, Hitler's in big trouble. And so is Germany. Because if you look at population numbers and all that sort of stuff, the Russian colossus, and it wasn't just Russia in the Soviet Union, it was a bunch of other areas, the Caucasus, Ukraine, Belarusia, the Baltic states, and a bunch of other places, they're going to swamp Germany if those assumptions are wrong. So on June 22, 1941, Hitler is playing a very high-stakes game. And yet, from the very outset, it looks like once again he's going to win. The first two weeks of the fighting against the Russians is an incredible German triumph. Now, it must be said, even during this triumph, the Germans were suffering more casualties and running into more resistance than they ever had in the fights that they faced in Poland or France or the Low Countries or Norway. Nevertheless, the progress that the German blitzkrieg tactics were making, the miles that were being covered were, well, incredible and stunning and most stunning of all, to their adversary, the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union should never have been caught flat-footed as they were. This massive surprise attack never should have been able to happen. The warning signs were there. It was the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, who chose to ignore these signs. And as some historians have pointed out, here you have one of the most paranoid people in all history, a leader who trusts no one, and the one time he decides to trust someone, it's one of the guys 
in history, you know, that you probably should be most suspicious of. A guy who was a congenital liar, Adolf Hitler. Even 24 hours into the war, Stalin was supposed to still be ordering his troops in places to not fight back because he thought it might be German generals acting on their own accord trying to spark a war. He still trusted Hitler. Now, not much was heard from Joseph Stalin for the first eight, nine days of the war. When the announcement was made to the Soviet people that war was occurring between Germany and Russia, it was made by one of Stalin's underlings, a guy named Molotov. The Soviet people didn't hear from Stalin until July 3rd. And when they did, they heard a very different-sounding Soviet leader than they'd heard before. First of all, gone were the normal you know, Soviet terms and rhetoric that communist audiences were used to hearing. All that stuff about the working class and the proletariat and the capitalist exploiters and all that rhetoric was replaced by a much more familiar tone. Words like brothers and sisters and friends. He sounded nervous, some reported, taking frequent breaks from the speech to sip from a glass of water. His harsh Georgian accent, which many Russians didn't even know he possessed, came through loud and clear. And his speech did other things that the communist rhetoric normally avoided. It glorified past history. Normally, Soviet history paid attention to everything after the October 1917 communist revolution and afterwards. That was the beginning of, you know, laudable Soviet history. Now he was talking about the great Russian leaders from the past. He was talking about the resistance to Napoleon. He was talking about Mother Russia. And he was invoking the great spirits of the Russian past, the motherland. As a matter of fact, the Soviets would call the war against the Germans the Great Patriotic War. And this was a very canny move by Joseph Stalin because he realized something from the start that was going on that needed to be counteracted. And that's that the German advance into places like Ukraine and Belarusia, which was happening at light speed, was being welcomed rather than resisted. People in the Ukraine, for example, had not been happy being satellites of the Bolsheviks by and large. There were certainly communist and certainly pro-Russian elements in those countries. But Ukraine remembered very clearly, it was only a decade or two before, that the great man-induced famine had killed millions in Ukraine, and that was almost certainly Joseph Stalin's fault. When the German soldiers arrived, the Ukrainian peasants welcomed them with the traditional welcome of bread and salt. You can go look at old film footage of Ukrainian peasant women blessing the German soldiers as they arrive. This to them was liberation. Not just that, this liberation was something that was a part of the German propaganda. You can go back and read now the way the German Nazi propaganda machine played up why they were attacking Russia. And there were two reasons. One, they said it was to forestall a Russian surprise attack. But two, it was to protect, you know, Western Christendom, European civilization from the, you know, Bolshevik Asian red tide. And here was the beginning of the liberation in the Western Russian territories, places like Ukraine, Belarusia and whatnot. And before the Germans even arrived, the nationalists in those regions, people who would be considered today by the Ukrainians and the Belarusians as patriots, were already coming out of the woodwork. The kind of people that were in hiding when the Soviets were in charge, because after all, being an anti-communist in a Soviet-controlled territory is basically, you know, a death sentence. They were coming out of the woodwork before the Germans even arrived and chiding the local communists, saying, the Germans are coming to get you. Many of the German generals after the... Uh, Second World War was over, said that the fatal flaw in the 
you know, strategy of the Nazi attack on the Soviet Union was not to live up to the propaganda hype. Had they really come as liberators, people like Manstein, for example, had written after the war, German general, that they could have toppled the Soviet regime because all these people were ready to be freed from Bolshevism. You get 20 or 30 years of experience with the Bolsheviks and many people were ready to try something new. The fatal flaw, of course, in the plan was that the Nazis, with their worldview, could not come as liberators to the people of the East because their plan was to enslave the people of the East. Their plan was to replace one slave master, the Soviet Bolshevik slave master, with the Nazi slave master. The people in the East were subhumans. They were fit to be the slaves of the new order. And as a matter of fact, the German hierarchy, people like Goring and Goebbels and those folks, were planning on an estimated 30 million Slavic deaths to be necessary before the colonists from Germany could recolonize the East and, you know, feed the people that were left there. They didn't want to feed all those Slavs, and it was going to be about 30 million that were going to have to go in order to make this possible. Most of them, Goring said, by starvation. I've always wondered, too, if the German people had understood, if this had been an open secret, and they had said, you know, we're going into the East and we're going to kill 30 million people there in order to create living room for ourselves, I wonder how many Germans would have been on board with that. Obviously, in a totalitarian state, this was not openly debated and talked about, but I get the feeling that that would not have been a popular decision. You know, during the war, there was a, a diary written by a German soldier where he called all these Nazi theories about the master race and the Untermenschen barroom racial theories backed by the force of a powerful state. And I wonder if there weren't a lot of Germans who felt that way as well. German army intelligence actually came to the conclusion in 1941 that the only way to beat the Soviet Union would have been to come as liberators and turn people like the Ukrainians and the Belarusians and all these people that didn't like the Soviet regime to begin with against it. But as I said, the tragic flaw in the system is that the Nazi ideology prevented this from happening. The whole reason for going there would have been undercut if you liberated these people to govern themselves. So Hitler's Nazi theories were probably the reason that the Nazis couldn't beat the Russians. And the nature of this war became apparent very quickly. It was very unlike the war in the West against the French, for example, which comparatively were knightly and gentlemanly. The German generals even talked about how this war in the East couldn't be conducted in a knightly fashion. And the treatment of Soviets who were surrendering, who became prisoners of war, made this apparent right away. The Germans were extremely harsh. The killings of surrendering soldiers was all too common. And the label partisan, which allowed anything to be done to someone, was very liberally applied. One German general said if you find anyone in civilian clothes with close-cropped hair, they're probably a partisan. You can shoot them. The German strategy of big encirclements meant that you were going to have tons of Soviet soldiers trapped behind German lines. All these people could be considered partisans, and partisans could be shot. Now, the fact that this was not altogether a popular approach is apparent in some of the complaints you'll read from German generals. There were really two kinds of German generals. There were the ones that were wholly infected with the Nazi ideology, and they really bought into this whole idea that this was a race war and you needed to wipe out the Soviet menace and kill all these partisans and all this stuff. And then there was another group that were much more part of the traditional German military that considered it a noble profession with a noble history, and they objected to this kind of stuff. Early on in the fighting, General Lemelson, who commanded the um, 
48th Panzer Corps, complained to higher-ups. He wrote, quote, I've observed that senseless shootings of both POWs and civilians have taken place. A Russian soldier who's been taken prisoner while wearing a uniform and after putting up a brave fight has the right to decent treatment. This changed nothing, so he wrote another memo saying, quote, In spite of my instructions, still more shootings of POWs and deserters have been observed, conducted in an irresponsible, senseless, and criminal manner. This is murder. The German Wehrmacht is waging this war against Bolshevism, not against the United Russian peoples. Apparently, General Lemelson was out of the loop when it came to what the Nazi grand scheme for this whole endeavor was. But he wasn't alone. Now, of course, the problem with treating... Russian soldiers, Russian POWs, and Russian civilians, the way the Germans started treating them, was that you're going to get payback. And the Russians began to treat German prisoners and people who fell into their hands with the sort of atrociousness that the Germans were treating them with. Now, it wasn't as contrived from the higher-ups. A lot of what was being done to Russian POWs was coming from, you know, the Nazi orders, whereas a lot of what the Russians were doing to the German soldiers were decisions made by vengeful soldiers on the ground. But these stories are still full of atrocities. One that comes to mind particularly happened in December 1941 when Russian troops overran a German field hospital and killed 160 patients that were recuperating there. They threw them out of the second-story windows of this hospital, which, of course, didn't kill them, and then they hosed them down with water and left them to freeze in the sub-zero temperatures. This was the sort of thing that simply upped the spiral of violence so that you had this self-perpetuating level of atrocities. One side would do something, the other side would respond. The side that did things originally would see the new atrocities and respond in kind, and you get this terrible cycle of violence and hate, a cycle that characterized this whole war in the East, a cycle of atrocities that led many to compare this war in the East to the terrible 30 years war, which had happened a couple hundred years before, which was considered to be a European war of atrocities. The stories from Barbarossa and the Russian campaign all the way to the fall of Berlin in 1945 is one long list of amazing, horrific atrocities. I mean, look at the way the Russian POWs who weren't killed upon surrendering were treated. First, they were marched to uh, prison camps. And if they fell along the march route, the standard thing to do was to shoot them. Many people reported that Russians were just being shot on the side of the road if they couldn't keep up with the march. When they did get to these prison camps, they weren't really prison camps. They were simply open fields most of the time with barbed wire around them. No shelter, no medical care, hardly any food and water. By the end of the war, only one out of every three Russian prisoners would have survived. That's more than three million Russian prisoners that died in German captivity. You compare that to how many Western troops died in German captivity, which was a very small number, and you see the difference in the treatment. The Russians were subhuman and were treated differently than the people in the West. And when you realize how many Russians were being taken prisoner, you can see why just putting them in big pens in open fields was tantamount to murder. And it was so bad that a serial killer like Stalin himself actually proposed a remedy which is strange when you think about it because he never had qualms about killing people. A month into Barbarossa, he actually sent a message to the German high command saying, look, let's abide by the Hague Convention treaties. The Hague Convention was something like the Geneva Convention now where it stipulated how POWs were supposed to be treated. And the Germans used the fact that the Soviets had never signed the Hague Convention for a reason why you didn't have to treat the Soviets humanely. 
Hitler said, listen, they didn't sign the Hague Convention, so they're going to get what they're going to get. A month into the fighting, Stalin said, look, if you act like we signed the Hague Convention, we'll treat your people like the Hague Convention's been signed and people will be treated more humanely. As I said, a weird thing for Stalin to say. The German high command never even answered him. And it never answered him because exactly what was happening to the Russian prisoners and the Russian surrendering soldiers and the civilians and the people that were claimed to be partisans was all part of the German plan. It was a war of annihilation and treating Russian prisoners humanely ran against the grain of what Hitler was trying to do anyway. Kill as many people in Soviet Russia as possible. And this was happening. Look at the numbers. From June 22nd, To July 9th, a couple of weeks, the Soviets lost more than 23,000 men a day just on the Belarusian front. 23,000 men killed, captured, or injured, you know, out of action forever, on one front of the fighting. Can you imagine? And the Germans were finding it tougher than you might expect as well. Even though they were cutting through Soviet forces like a knife through butter, they lost more of their troops fighting the Russians for three weeks than they lost in the whole conquest of France the year before. So even though the Germans were winning, they were finding it tougher than they thought. I mean, one fortress, the fortress of Brest-Litovsk, held out for weeks, holding up the German advance in the center in one area, fought to the last man and woman. Reports were that anyone who did surrender were executed by the Germans out of, you know, malice. They were angry they were being held up and that these people weren't surrendering. But that was a sign of things to come. This wasn't going to be a war where everybody just gave up, even though lots of people were. The encirclement of Minsk had happened early on. Hundreds of thousands of Soviet prisoners falling into German hands. The German chief of staff, Franz Halder, saying that he thought after about 11 days that the war was essentially already over. The next big encirclement happens at Smolensk. And this is on the way to Moscow. And by the way, this is not like ancient warfare where you have a big battle and then maybe nothing happens for a long time. And then you have another big battle in modern warfare. As many of you already know, there's low level fighting going on all the time. And you have a 2000 or more kilometer front, you know, a whole nation's border essentially erupting in fighting. There's fighting going on all the time. In a podcast like this, all we can do is focus on the major encounters. Otherwise, it just devolves into minutia. The next major encounter after the giant Minsk encirclement is at Smolensk. And that encirclement happened between July 6th and August 5th, 1941. Eventually, 340,000 Red Army troops will be killed or captured in this encirclement. 2,000 to 3,000 tanks lost. 1,000 aircraft destroyed. So in a couple of weeks, the Soviet Union's lost hundreds of thousands of guys, tons of equipment. And it should be mentioned, this equipment was not exactly what the Germans were planning for, especially talking about tanks. German propaganda had taught that the Soviet Union was backwards and that the Germans had these huge technological advantages in warfare. The soldiers, though, fighting the Russians found out quickly into the war that this wasn't necessarily true. Sure, there was a lot of outdated stuff, a lot of outdated tanks, a lot of outdated guns, a lot of outdated aircraft, but there was already some stuff in the Russian arsenal that was really nasty. A couple of tanks come to mind right away. The T-34, which may have been the best tank of the war, certainly on the early side of the war, a medium tank, and then a very heavy tank called the KV-1, probably the best heavy tank of the early war, and the Germans were completely unprepared for this. Their shells would bounce off these tanks. They had nothing in their arsenals to deal with them, and they had been told that they were never going to be dealing with anything superior to their own equipment in Russia. 
It was lucky for them that early on in this war there wasn't much of that good stuff. And German tactics, German doctrine, German fighting experience, and German command was so superior they were able to work around this problem. But Hitler even said to General Guderian later on in the fighting that had he actually believed Guderian's pre-war estimates of the, of the Russian tank capabilities, he might never have invaded the Soviet Union to begin with. Pointing out once again that one of Hitler and his general staff's problems were they often thought that the estimates of their enemy's powers were overestimated and usually they were pretty dead on. And had he known exactly how strong the Russians were, he might not have invaded in the first place. Now, these new tanks and all this new equipment was being obviously produced in Russian factories. These Russian factories were, for the most part, located in the western part of the country, the exact part of the country the Germans were overrunning. So very early on into the fighting, Stalin makes a move that probably saved the Soviet Union in the war. An amazing move. He tells all these factories to move to simply break down buildings, structures, machinery, everything, put them on trains, and send them east. At least to the Ural Mountains, some of them all the way to Siberia. You're talking hundreds, in some cases thousands of miles. And it was a double-edged sort of a decision, because if you break down these factories, they're out of commission for a while. They're not making KV-1 tanks and T-34 tanks and guns and shells and all this stuff, but it's better than having the Germans overrun them, isn't it? This is considered to be one of the most amazing aspects of the early part of Operation Barbarossa. Maybe as many as 2,000 Russian factories totally dismantled and moved. What's more, a lot of the work was done by women and almost children because the men were being conscripted into the fighting forces. So these women are in Siberia in cold weather without electricity trying to you know, rebuild these factories and get them online quickly. And for the most part, they did. This would prove to be absolutely crucial to the Soviet war effort because that took those factories out of the range of the German armies. Not just that, the German armies ran into another problem. The Russian railroads happened to have a different width of railroad track than the ones in the rest of Europe. Doesn't sound like a big problem, does it? Until you realize that that's how supplies were transferred back then. In order to get the shells and the troops and everything you needed to the front lines, they had to come on the railroad. And once you hit the Russian borders, the railroads you used to get to the Russian borders couldn't function on the tracks in Russia. Had to have Russian trains. And the Russians were busy blowing up every train they had that would fall into German hands. The supply problem started for the Germans less than a month into the Barbarossa campaign. The difference in the Russian track gauge would cause problems throughout the war. Now, to prove that Hitler had been wrong in his gamble about the rotting structure coming down if you just kick in the door, in the first three weeks of Barbarossa, the Soviets lost 3,500 or more tanks, 6,000 or more aircraft, and 2 million men killed or captured. The Germans had kicked in the door, but the structure hadn't fallen. The gamble may have been a mistake. And to the people who were in the know, it started to look like a bad gamble pretty early on. Even when the Germans were winning and moving quickly and looking like they were going to capture the major cities, certain people were already starting to get nervous. Hitler wasn't one of them, by the way. The weirdness starts in the middle of July. On July 16th, less than a month into the fighting, Adolf Hitler announces that Moscow is not the major target for the German armies. As we said, there were three major German army groups. One was in the north, Army Group North. They were heading toward Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. 
Army Group Center, their job was to follow toward the road to Moscow and presumably capture Moscow. And then Army Group South, whose job it was to go into the Ukraine, capture Kiev, places like that. On July 16th, Hitler changes the plan. Says Moscow's really not that important. We're going to take the army that should have gone to Moscow and use them to help encircle all these Russian armies. This was argued against strongly by a lot of Hitler's best generals. They argued that Moscow was the key to the whole thing, capture Moscow, and the war is over by and large. Hitler pointed out, as did some of his other generals that supported him, that, look, Napoleon captured Moscow and it didn't do anything. The Russians just burned Moscow down and there was Napoleon stuck in a burnt-out city with the Russian winter coming. The counter-argument to that was, well, Moscow wasn't as important back in Napoleon's time. Now it was the command center for everything. The communists ran the whole country from there. The railways all went through there. Capture it and the whole command center, the brain of Soviet Russia, goes down. Hitler refused to change his mind, though. And some of his generals and close associates wrote after the war, they thought he might have an almost superstitious need to avoid doing the same things Napoleon did. And that if he took a different approach, he wouldn't fall victim to the same fate. So on July 16th, Hitler changes the plans, and that may have messed up everything. Now, on August 3rd, the German troops finish the reduction of the Smolensk pocket and capture Smolensk. But by this time, the impetus of the German, you know, thrust that started on June 22nd has petered out. The momentum is stalled. The German equipment is suffering terribly from wear and tear. The Russian roads are horrible. On maps, they looked like they were real roads. When the Germans finally got to them, they turned out to be dirt tracks that were very hard on the equipment. The infantry are trying hard to keep up with this amazing speed of the advance, but it's wearing them down. They're terribly fatigued. They're marching incessantly. And the Russians are often fighting heroically. It's this strange dichotomy. Because how can you take so many prisoners all the time and yet still be facing this fanatical resistance? Sometimes the people who were surrendering were from these areas of the Soviet Union that were not so happy to be part of the Soviet Union anyway. People in the Ukraine and Belarus whose families were already now in German hands and never really liked the Russians to begin with. Nevertheless, these stories of the heroic Russian resistance are moving. And many of the stories have to come from the Germans because there are few tales that actually survived from the 1941 campaign because most of the Russians who would have told them died. One story comes from a German anti-tank gunner named Helmut Pohl. He talked about the fanatical resistance that they ran into against the Soviets. He, he wrote, quote, During the advance, we came up against the light T-26 tank, which we could easily knock out even with the 37-millimeter gun. There was a Russian hanging in the turret who continued to shoot at us from above with a pistol as we approached. He was dangling inside the tank without legs, having lost them when the tank was hit. Despite this, he still shot at us with his pistol. Man with no legs in the turret of a tank shooting at the Germans with a pistol as they advance. That's resistance. Now, some of the accounts that have survived from the Soviet resistance early on in this fighting come from the Germans also, from letters they found on the corpses of the Russians who were resisting fanatically. There was a Russian named Alexander Golikov, who was a tanker, who wrote a letter to his wife while he looked at her picture from a doomed tank he was fighting in, and he knew he was doomed. He wrote, quote, Our tank shook with the impact of enemy shots, but we were still alive. We have no more shells, 
and are short of bullets. Pavel is shooting at the enemy with the turret machine gun while I take a breather and chat with you. He was chatting to the photo. I know this will be the last time. I would like a long chat, but time is too short. It's good to die when you know somewhere there's a person who will think it was good to have been loved. The uh, Soviet veteran Boris Gorbachevsky writes that the lifespan of a Russian soldier in 1941 was less than a week, and only hours if the Russians were on the attack. When he said his last goodbye to his mother before shipping out, she treated it as though they were saying goodbye forever, because she knew what the average lifespan of the Russian troops at this point in the war was as well. He tells of being shipped to the front on trains, and at every train station they would stop at, he would run into Soviet mothers who were carrying placards where they had written the name of their child on the placard, and they would hold it up to the windows of the train, hoping that some of the soldiers on the train would be able to give them some news of the fate of their child. And for anyone who was in the path of the German armies that were occupying these towns and villages, who had any illusions about what life was going to be like under the Germans, that it was going to be any better than what life was like under the Soviets, the illusions were quickly crushed once the Germans took over the town and started putting up the new rules. The new rules looked a lot like the old rules, meaning very harsh. Sonia Davidowa, a uh, resident of a village called Slusk, wrote, talking about the Germans, quote, on the same day they marched in, they announced strict laws. All communist and Komsomol members were to report without delay to be registered. Whoever went in could naturally bid life adieu. Anyone supplying provisions to Soviet soldiers and partisans was immediately shot. A curfew was imposed. Anyone found on the streets after 6 p.m. without an identity pass was immediately executed. The Germans often started hanging people right when they would enter a town as an example communists especially, Jews as well. The pictures you can see from Soviet towns, villages, and cities right after the German entry into them often shows many people hanging from lampposts and buildings and flagposts and makeshift gallows. Now on August 9th, Hitler compounds his decision about Moscow not being a major goal, he issues something called Directive Number 34, which temporarily abandons Moscow as his objective in favor of Ukraine, the big breadbasket of the Soviet Union. Hitler's generals once again protest, but he brushes them off with a line, a very condescending line. He says, quote, my generals know nothing of economic matters, meaning, you know, he's the smart guy who realizes the big goals of the war and the big goals require economic targets be taken as opposed to cities and destroying armies and whatnot. He'll come to regret this decision. On August 11th, the head of the Army's General Staff, Franz Halder, who only a couple of weeks before had written that he thought the war was basically over in his diary, started writing something with a different tone in his diary. He wrote, quote, Overall, it is clearer and clearer that we have underestimated the Russian colossus, which has prepared itself for war with an utter lack of restraint, which is characteristic of a totalitarian state. This is true of the area in organization as well as it is of the economy and the area of transport and communications, but above all to pure military power. At the start of the war, we reckoned on some 200 enemy divisions. Now we've already counted 360. These divisions are definitely not armed and equipped in our sense, and tactically they are in many ways badly led, but they are there. He also wrote, quote, when a dozen Russian divisions are destroyed, the Russians throw in another dozen. On this broad expanse, our front is too thin. It has no depth. As a result, the repeated enemy attacks often meet with some success. 
So here's a man who two weeks into the fighting, ten days into the fighting, thinks the war is over. A month or so later is starting to realize that some of the assumptions were gravely mistaken. German uh, commander von Rundstedt wrote during the same period that the vastness of Russia devours us. You look at the space and the distance and the inability to cover it in any sort of depth. The German armies were just disappearing into this giant, deep, wide landmass. It was like an ocean of plains. Now, Russian armies were still surrendering, though, in numbers that were appalling to the Soviet high command. On August 16th, Stalin issued an order that's become infamous ever since, called Order Number 270. And it was an extremely brutal but maybe necessary command from a totalitarian government. Order number 270 said that any commanders or commissars who tore away their insignia or deserted or surrendered should be considered malicious deserters. The order also required superiors to shoot these people on the spot. Family members of these people, this is typical totalitarian regime stuff, even family members were to be punished for the activities of their brethren on the front. The second part of Order number 270 demanded that any soldiers who were encircled by the enemy use every possibility to fight and to demand that their commanders organize fighting behind the lines. Anyone attempting to surrender instead of fighting must be killed instantly and their family members back home deprived of any state welfare and assistance. The order also required divisional commanders to demote and, if necessary, even shoot those on the spot, any commanders who failed to command their troops to do these things. Stalin said when he issued the order, quote, there are no Russian prisoners of war, only traitors. In other words, anyone who surrendered under any conditions was a traitor, and their families back home were going to be treated like the families of traitors. And if you think Stalin wasn't fair when he issued the order, his own son fell into German hands as a POW, and Stalin sent his daughter-in-law to a prison camp. This order, by the way, made double victims of many Soviet citizens. Untold thousands of Soviet troops were executed or sent to the Gulag after the war. After spending horrific years trying to survive German captivity, then they're sent home, you know, after the war, either being prisoners of war or German slaves in German factories, and then they're executed or sent to the Gulag for having surrendered at all. Order number 270 was brutal, but it got the job done. You already had Russians fighting like fanatics. Now they realized that surrendering would simply endanger their families back home. The Germans were fighting a ferocious foe. And one that was every bit as brutal and totalitarian as they were. Adolf Hitler said once, one of the main advantages of a totalitarian state is it forces its enemies to act in a similar manner. Well, Stalin didn't need any lessons on acting like a totalitarian from Adolf Hitler. This order also had another benefit. There were lots of Soviet soldiers who hated the Soviet regime. You have to think of people who lived in Ukraine and Belarusia and the Caucasus, people who were from the Baltic states, people who had suffered at the hands of the Soviets, who looked forward to the Soviet regime falling. These people didn't want to fight in the first place. Imagine that you had to fight for a regime that imprisoned or killed your family or that traumatized and persecuted your racial or ethnic group. And this didn't just happen in the Soviet Union either. There were two great books I read as part of the prep for this uh, 
show. One was called Blood Red Snow from a German soldier. Another was called Through the Maelstrom by a Russian soldier. And both of these soldiers' fathers had been imprisoned by their respective regimes. The German author talked about his father returning from a concentration camp, seeing his son after years and years and just breaking down and crying. It was an almost identical story to what Boris Gorbachevsky wrote in Through the Maelstrom when his father arrived back home after years in a Russian gulag. And then these two soldiers get to go fight for the regime that devastated their families. It's one thing to be patriotic and wanting to fight for your country. It's another thing having to fight for your country when your country's treated you in that sort of a manner. Imagine being in that position. On August 20th, Hitler makes another strange, weird order that will screw up the war. He orders the siege of the city of Leningrad, not the capture of it. Leningrad was one of the biggest of the Russian cities. It was up north, and it was an area where the German armies had made the most progress. They got to Leningrad quickly. They basically surrounded it and were going to take it. And Hitler said, no, don't take it. Surround it and starve the people. One of the reasons he wanted to starve them was because he had no intention of trying to feed them after capturing the city. As a matter of fact, his plans for Moscow were exactly the same. They were not going to accept the surrenders of these cities. They were not going to go in and take them with street fighting. They were going to starve and kill the populations or at least make them flee away so that the Germans weren't responsible for feeding and taking care of them. So the German armies surround Leningrad and begin a siege that will go on for years and create conditions that are some of the most horrible that happened in any major world city in the 20th century. Leningrad would be a symbol of human suffering in this war. Also in the final week of August, Hitler reauthorizes Moscow as a major target. But by this time, has he waited too long? In July, he says Moscow's off the table. In late August, he says Moscow's back on the table. And now everything has to be reorganized. Armies have to turn, and Moscow has to become a target again. And it's the end of August. Also at the end of August, around August 23rd, the Battle of Kiev begins in Ukraine. Kiev, another one of the major cities in the heart of the Soviet breadbasket. Another giant encirclement battle, one of the largest. And this would occupy Army Group South for quite a while. It also occupies the Soviet High Command because it's one of those cities that the Soviets and Stalin dreads the thought of losing. Some cities could be sacrificed. Kiev was considered one of the seats of the you know, Russian people, and it was not to be abandoned. It was to be fought for to the last man. By this time, the end of August, German losses on the Russian front have reached 440,000 people. By August 26th, the German losses on the Russian front are worse than all their losses in the rest of the Second World War put together so far. They know they're in a major fight by this time. Also by this time, the partisans are starting to make their presence known. You see, all these Soviet soldiers that got caught behind German lines, they're aware now that what's really going to happen to them if they surrender is that they're probably going to be killed or they're going to be sent to these prison camps where they're probably going to die anyway. So they figure, what the hell? They start hiding in the forests, organizing resistance among civilians. They start organizing as partisans, and they become a force to be reckoned with by this time. The funny thing about it is, when Hitler is told about all these partisans behind German lines, he's almost happy about it. He said, quote, it has its advantages. It gives us a chance to exterminate anyone who turns against us. He had no idea, though, 
how powerful these partisan forces would eventually become. And the Germans made this worse. This is one thing the Germans never seemed to understand, even in the First World War, that treating the captured populations so harshly would alienate them and make the partisans worse. The Germans felt that the way you dealt with people sniping at your troops and fighting them behind the lines was to employ things like collective punishment. The German orders said that 100 civilians should be executed for every German soldier killed and that 50 civilians should be executed for every German soldier injured. Whole villages were sometimes leveled to punish them for partisan sympathies. Sometimes they were leveled ahead of time to just act as a warning. They also thought that this would deter the partisans. Listen, if you uh, act up against our troops, the villages where you're all from and you live are going to be destroyed. All it did was drive more and more people into the hands of the partisans, and the Germans never learned this lesson. When it wouldn't work, they would simply make it more harsh. The partisan warfare and the responses to it was one of the most brutal elements of this whole fighting in the East. And the German lack of understanding that the harsher they were, the worse it got, was part of the vicious cycle. Also, this whole label partisan allowed cover for killing people that the Germans wanted to kill anyway. Jews were considered to be partisan supporters simply by their very nature. During a uh, trial after the Second World War in Minsk, a German soldier took the stand, and this was a Russian court where he was interviewed. His name was Albert Roddenbush, and he described a typical anti-partisan operation. And you get an idea what this was like, and how would you feel if this happened in your town? He said, quote, We started our operation in a village. There were no partisans in this village. The people from the village provided us with heated rooms and gave us food, so we were very surprised when the company commander later ordered us to burn down the village and arrest the village people. So, 50 inhabitants were taken prisoner. We then moved on to another village. It was about 10 or 11 kilometers away. Upon our arrival, we came under fire from rifles. Our company commander ordered us to occupy the village and to shoot on sight anyone offering resistance or attempting to flee. We shot about 70 people, among them also women, old people, and children. And then we burnt down the village. From the first village, we took 14 head of cattle, and from the second village, 10 head of cattle. We then proceeded to the third village. We didn't come across any partisans there, but we still burnt down the village and shot around 50 people, even women and children. And then we moved on to the fourth village and did exactly the same as we had done in the other villages. There we shot about 100 people, burnt down the village, and made about 80 arrests. This was all justified by the Nazi regime as a response to what they called the, quote, special nature of the enemy. End quote. This enemy was deemed to be, quote, inscrutable, unpredictable, underhanded, and callous, and was characterized as using treacherous methods of fighting. The Germans called them terrorists. And again, the harsh measures that they employed to deter this terroristic activity did nothing but make it worse. For example, when the Nazi governor of the city of Minsk was assassinated, the Germans hanged a thousand citizens of Minsk in the city and left them hanging there for everyone to see as an example. Now, the Nazi ideology and the German attitude of harsh measures equaling, you know, subservience was proven wrong time and time again. A perfect example comes from a story that was told uh, by a German officer of something that happened in Russia. He wrote, quote, 
While we were in the Mogilev region, a rumor reached Vondenbach that there was a quantity of gold in the Polyakovo State Farm. We went out there and tore the place to pieces looking for it. The head of the settlement begged us to wait, as he could get the gold in 24 hours, and if the buildings were all destroyed, the peasants would have nowhere to spend the winter. At dusk, we left with orders that the gold was to be produced the following day, or the entire population of the farm would be placed under arrest. Fisher, one of the soldiers, and a detachment of four men stayed behind to keep an eye on things. The next day, no Fisher. We could not get him on the shortwave radio, as they were with motorcycle outfits, and the farm was nearly 100 kilometers from Mogilev. So the following day, we went back there with six armored cars. The place was burned to the ground. One building, the office, stood. And in it, a leather box, very heavy. Gold, scrawled on it in white paint. We opened it. Inside were the heads of Fischer, Hahn, Neudeck, and Grossa. That was the kind of treatment that the German harsh retribution was prompting. Not subservience, resistance. Then, of course, there was the issue of the Jews... If the Second World War is known for anything, it's known for the Holocaust. The German attempts to exterminate European Jewry. And people think of concentration camps and gas chambers often when they think of this sort of stuff. But they often forget that that was not the way it started. The way it started was with the Einsatzgruppen and other outfits whose job it was to kill Jews the old-fashioned way by shooting them. The Einsatzgruppen and groups like the SD and many... um, organized police units would follow in the wake of the German Wehrmacht units and begin killing Jews right after the Germans took over towns and villages in the Soviet Union. Not just Jews, but Russian commissars, gypsies, and others. And the Wehrmacht isn't blameless. For a long time after the Second World War, there was this attitude that, yes, the SS and the Einsatzgruppen and these, these bad people did these things, but the German army is you know, not tainted by these terrible crimes. Recent works out of Germany in the 1990s proved conclusively that the Wehrmacht was more involved in anti-Jewish activities than people were led to believe. An example of some of these Einsatzgruppen activities was described by a German veteran who saw uh, SS men herding Jewish men, women, and children with their hands tied with wire towards a long pit, and he wrote about what he saw. He said that along this pit's 150-yard length were hundreds of people on foot and standing in open-back trucks. He wrote, quote, To our horror, we realized that they were all Jews, he said. He described how the victims were tumbled into the ditch and made to lie in rows, alternately head to foot. He said once a layer was in place, two SS men moved down either side of the ditch with a Russian machine pistol, firing automatic bursts into the back of people's heads. Single shots, he said, rang out afterwards as they strode along the line, finishing off the wounded. He said, quote, Then people were again driven forward, and they had to get in and lie on top of the dead. He says at that moment, a young girl, she must have been about 12 years old, cried out in a clear, piteous, shrill voice, Let me live! I'm still only a child! The child was grabbed, he wrote, thrown into the ditch, and shot. This scene would be repeated countless times on the Eastern Front, as Jews were liquidated en masse. Maybe the worst case of this mass shooting happened at a place called Babi Yar, where more than 33,000 men, women, and children were killed by gunmen and thrown into pits outside the city of Kiev. 
And the Nazis were aided in this by locals who happened to be anti-Semitic as well. There were Ukrainians and Belarusians and Latvians and people like that who didn't like Jews in their midst anyway, who were only too happy to help with the killings, unfortunately. Now, it should be noted that there were always German soldiers, officers, and generals that were against these activities. Sometimes that's not mentioned enough. They believed that they sullied the honor of the German army, and they weren't part of the Nazi clique of these officers. They were more old school, and they found these kinds of activities much more distasteful. Some even risked their own positions to aid Jews. There was one officer, a lieutenant colonel named Helmut Grosskirth. He had found out that 90 Jewish orphans, ranging in age from infants to about seven years old, were scheduled to be shot in Russia. And he tried in vain to get that order reversed. And he was even threatened that he would be reported to Heinrich Himmler himself after they were killed anyway, you know, despite his efforts. He wrote to his wife, quote, we cannot and should not be allowed to win this war. And that incident prompted him to begin meeting with some of the secret anti-Nazi groups of higher German officers that would eventually try to assassinate Adolf Hitler. So despite what some might think, there were decent people of conscience amid all the evil of the Third Reich, people who were opposed to this stuff from the get-go. Of course, at the other end of the spectrum are Nazi leaders like Field Marshal Walter von Reichenau, who ordered that the men of the Wehrmacht Sixth Army were to kill Jews. He said, quote, In this eastern theater of war, the soldier is not only a man fighting in accordance with the rules of war, but also the ruthless standard-bearer of a national ideal and the avenger of all the bestialities perpetrated on the German peoples. For this reason, the soldier must fully appreciate the necessity for the severe but just retribution that must be meted out to the subhuman species of Jewry. Their duty was, he said, to, quote, free the German people forever from the Jewish-Asiatic threat. So it kind of depended on which general or field marshal you had, how your unit acted with Jews, partisans, gypsies, and commissars. And it's interesting to wonder about the human side of these sorts of activities, because people today think, how could any of these individuals have conducted something like that? How do you shoot women and children in pits and just keep doing it all day long till 33,000 of them are lying there? It almost seems like these are different creatures than we are. We have to account, though, for the fact that they were brutalized by governmental systems that encouraged that kind of behavior and that mode of thinking, and that we're more capable of that as a species than we think we are. There was, um, there was a whole line of thinking that took place after the war was over at the Nuremberg Trials, where we were prosecuting the main Nazi leaders for war crimes. And many of these Nazi leaders said at the time that they shouldn't be held responsible for what happened because they were merely following orders. And the judges from all the Allied countries said, that's no excuse. And what they were basically saying was, you have a duty to oppose orders like this. And that sounds like a very high moral road to travel, but we forget a little bit how we might act in the same situation. I mean, imagine if they threaten you or your family with death, imprisonment, torture for opposing the regime and not doing what you're told. There were some very interesting critiques made by people from totalitarian regimes, exactly why they were able to get human beings to do these kind of things. There was a German surgeon who was appalled by SS atrocities, and he wrote, quote, the ingenious way totalitarian states 
by making people who oppose government policy simply disappear, deny their opponents the opportunity to die a martyr's death for their convictions. Now, this is almost exactly what a Russian writer wrote. He said about the Soviet system, quote, You become an accomplice to the system even though you're an adversary, because you are unable to express disapproval even if you are willing to pay with your life. End quote. What these people are saying is that instead of being able to stand up there and die for the cause, to have a martyr's death where your death actually accomplishes something, in these totalitarian systems, they simply made you disappear. No one knew what happened to you, and no one knew why you died. So not only do you get to be tortured and killed by the Gestapo or the NKVD, and then have your family likely punished as well, but these regimes manage to make your sacrifices meaningless at the same time. And we like to think we would act so differently. But how many of us would have been prepared to see our wife and children and parents tortured or sent away to an uncertain fate in concentration camps to avoid participating in such evil ourselves? I like to think I'd be one of them, but that's a heck of an assumption to make while I'm sitting here in the comfort of my own, you know, free society. It does make the effort, though, of those who did resist these terrible regimes that much more astounding, brave, and admirable, doesn't it? What would you have done? Could any of us have been Nazis or NKVD killers? And how many of us would be alive had we not been able to do that and lived in those kind of systems? You know, you think about it this way. How many Americans, for example, even protested the internment of Japanese Americans in camps during the Second World War? Precious few, if any. And that situation was far less evil, and the ramifications of protesting far less than in any of these cases. Imagine if our government would have put you in a concentration camp for such a conscientious stand. It's easy to judge these people when we haven't walked a mile in their moccasins. Well, in 1961, little over 15 years after the Second World War ended, a Yale University researcher decided to conduct an experiment to try to figure out exactly how far people would be willing to follow unethical orders, maybe even evil orders, if they came from an authority figure. Now, there was widespread interest at the time because the Israelis were trying a fugitive war criminal, a Nazi war criminal that they had captured named Adolf Eichmann. And that same refrain that happened at the Nuremberg trials over and over was being uttered, this idea that I was just following orders. And the West was mostly disgusted at that sort of a excuse, saying that it was the responsibility of all good citizens to resist you know, carrying out unethical and evil orders. So this Milgram experiment, as it became to be called at uh, Yale University, was intended to find out exactly how many people would be willing to carry out an unethical order if an authority figure commanded it. And the way the experiment worked was this. Ads were put in the paper asking for people who would volunteer to teach to learners. And these people showed up at the clinic. They sat down at a console that had buttons, and they were told that on the other side of the wall, they couldn't see this person, but they could hear them, was a learner. And they were supposed to ask questions of the learner. And if the learner on the other side of the wall got the question wrong, the teacher, the volunteer, was supposed to push a button that delivered an electric shock to the learner on the other side of the wall. Now, initially, the electric shock was small. But for each successive question that the learner got wrong, the shock would increase in voltage. So if you got five, six, seven, eight, nine questions wrong, you're starting to deliver a significant shock. Eventually, at the end of the voltage scale, you were reaching 400, 450 volt levels. Now, the electrical shocks, of course, weren't real. 
That's just what the subjects in the experiment were told they were inflicting in terms of pain on another person. And what would happen is eventually, you know, the learner was told to get these questions wrong. So the teacher, the volunteer, would continue to push the buttons. Now, eventually they would come to a point because the person on the other side of the wall, the learner, would start to groan, would start to react to the shocks. You would hear eventually screams and then banging on the walls. You know, eventually they would say something like, I have a heart condition. Please stop shocking me. And a lot of these people, the study said, would turn to the researcher and say, can I stop? Or that person sounds sick or I don't want to do this anymore. And the authority figure, the researcher would say, you must continue. The experiment requires it. You have no option. You must go on. They would continue to shock this person until the person would stop making noise altogether as though they'd passed out or were hurt or were dead or whatever. And people still delivered the shocks because that was considered to be a non-response to the question, a wrong answer on the test. Had to shock him again, even though they sound injured. Folks, more than 60% of the Americans in this experiment were willing to give the maximum shock to the person on the other side of the wall several times. 450 volts to a person that sounded like they were already gone. What Milgram's experiment showed is that even people raised in a system that values human rights highly, that had lived through the Nuremberg trials in the Second World War and were indoctrinated into the idea that resistance to unethical orders was every you know, good human being's duty, more than half of them were willing to do this because an authority figure commanded them to. Now imagine how different those results would be were we dealing with people raised instead in a totalitarian system of government, one that dehumanized people every day, one that taught that people were subhuman, that taught values completely contradictory to the idea that you should stand up and resist orders given if you thought they were unethical. What's more, the people who were participating in this experiment were not going to have anything bad happen to them or their families if they didn't carry out the orders. It was perfectly voluntary. And they still did it. What would happen if you had some regime telling you that if you didn't do this, you or your family were going to be punished harshly for not carrying out such orders? It's very easy to say that you have a duty to stand up and resist unethical orders. It's another thing entirely to do so when under the gun. As Russian author Vasily Grossman has said, quote, The extreme violence of totalitarian systems proved able to paralyze the human spirit through whole continents. What you have here in this war of extermination in Eastern Europe is the human spirit paralyzed and acting out in the most evil of ways, ways that we may think ourselves exempt from, but that we probably aren't. Now, on September 11th, between the September 11th and September 16th, the Kiev pocket, as it's called, is finally completely encircled, and five full Soviet armies are trapped in it. Russian generals request permission to try to have those armies break out toward the east, try to save some of those troops from destruction. But Stalin, sending messages with the telegraph, completely forbids it. He sends the message, quote, Kiev is not to be given up, and the bridges are not to be blown without high command authority. Kiev was, is, and will be Soviet. No withdrawal is allowed. Stay and hold, and if necessary, die. Out. You know, signing off with the proverbial out at the end of the telegraph message. The message from within the Kiev, the now doomed Kiev pocket, was, quote, Your orders are clear. Out. Farewell. In September, 
the USSR orders all men ages 16 to 50 to sign up for military service. On September 19th, the great city in the Ukraine, Kiev, is captured. The Germans capture more than 650,000 Red Army troops, destroy 2,500 or more tanks and 1,000-plus guns. Hitler calls this the greatest battle in world history. But experienced generals like Franz Halder and Heinz Guderian call it a tragic blunder instead, feeling that the effort that had been made to capture Kiev and take these Russians prisoners should have been spent trying to capture Moscow instead because they knew what Hitler was pretending wasn't going to happen, and that's that it was September and the weather was going to change. On September 27th, it does. Rains start across the entire Russian front, turning these dirt tracks into mud. And not just mud, a kind of mud that the Germans were completely unprepared for. It's famous. The Russian spring and the Russian fall traditionally is the mud season. And the dirt roads turn to a kind of mud that will suck a truck into it up to the axles, or worse. Traditional horse transportation doesn't work. Even tracked vehicles have a hard time. Soldiers trying to march in it, it's a disaster. The already stretched German supply lines, well, they become a disaster as well. The German advance slows to nearly a halt at an absolutely crucial time. There are stories of the Germans actually using the very plentiful number of Russian corpses on the ground to throw them on the roads to try to get a little traction, you know, on the corpses instead of trying to do so on the mud. Horrible stuff like that. Now, on September 30th, 1st of October, kind of, Hitler starts the opening stages of what's called Operation Typhoon. This is the now-delayed attack on Moscow. German forces are still about 200 miles away, and they're still wearing, for the most part, their summer uniforms, in some cases paper-thin summer uniforms, because Hitler, either because he was worried about jinxing the whole effort by even thinking about it, or worrying the public back home, or affecting the morale of his own soldiers, had forbidden the Wehrmacht to look into the idea of winter uniforms, acting as though, you know, this whole conflict's going to be over before we have to worry about winter. Hence, most units were still fighting in their summer uniforms. As a matter of fact, on October 3rd, Hitler says on the German radio, quote, that Russia has already been broken and will never rise again, end quote. So obviously he's not thinking about the terrible struggle for the Russian capital that still lays ahead. He's already counting his chickens before they've hatched. He's aided in this by a couple of more giant encirclements that happen on the way to Moscow and as part of this attack on Moscow, two Russian pockets in places called Bransk and Vyazma encircle, again, huge number of Red Army troops. The German forces are, in some cases, moving quickly again, armored forces mainly, the infantry still bogged down in the terrible mud. Heinz Guderian and his tank corps entered the city of Orel so quickly and so unexpectedly that the Russian streetcars are still running and the citizens are waving to the German tankers, assuming that these must be Soviet military units because, well, they weren't expecting the Germans to be anywhere near them. And they weren't the only ones surprised by the German advance. Soviet reconnaissance aircraft report to Stalin that German armored columns are only 100 miles from Moscow at this point. 
The Supreme Soviet Command refuses to even believe this. As a matter of fact, the head of the NKVD secret police, Beria, even wants to arrest and interrogate the pilots for, well, what he calls panic-mongering. Now, eventually, these reports are confirmed, and Stalin finally decides to take the threat to his capital seriously. He appoints an up-and-coming general named Zhukov to command the defense. He mobilizes 100,000 men in the city as a militia. He conscripts another 250,000 citizens, mostly women and children, to dig trenches and anti-tank ditches outside the city. I mean, everybody can see that this is shaping up to be the crucial battle in this Operation Barbarossa 1941 campaign in the East. On October 8th, though, the harbinger of things to come happens. The first significant snowfall is recorded in almost all the German diaries that we have. Now, it's a minor snowfall. It quickly turns to mud and just becomes a greater part of the mud problem that they're already dealing with on the Russian front. But everyone writing about it gets you know, the hidden meaning behind this whole thing. The Russian winter is not far off, and we're not in Moscow yet, and we're certainly not ready for this. On October 14th, the panic in Moscow begins. And it's a lot like the panic you can go read about that happened when Napoleon was right outside the gates of Moscow in 1812. People trying desperately to flee, knocking other people off the trains, trying to get out of the city. Lenin, the Bolshevik revolutionary whose mummified corpse had been sitting inside the Kremlin, is evacuated to the east along with all those Russian factories that had been moved back to the east since the conflict started. Stalin, however, even though he's told he should leave, decides to stay a symbolic attempt to show the people in Moscow that he's not going anywhere. What's more, harsh measures designed to rein in the panic and the looting and the black marketeering, even drunkenness, are enforced. I mean, you could be drunk because you're worried about the Germans coming to your city and the Russian secret police will line you up against the wall and shoot you at this particular time. Heck, they were taking out every 10th apartment manager, you know, just randomly, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, take that guy and shooting them. The NKVD was doing this to set an example of the harshness that all the stuff was going to be treated with. No panic allowed. And just in case you were thinking about it, look what happened to every 10th apartment manager. Stalin says Moscow is to be defended to the last person. And this is an attempt to make that clear to everyone. On October 17th, these pocket battles near Moscow end. The Germans capture another 670,000 Red Army troops. Folks, that's, if you're counting, a million and a half Russians in the last month. That's why it's hard to look at the Western Front with the Allies and take those casualty numbers seriously. No one wants to minimize anyone's death and suffering. But the casualties in places like D-Day seem like, you know, a day or two's fighting on the Russian Front. It's uncanny that the resistance is continuing. Now, in October, something else happens that turned out to be crucial to the entire war effort, but was little known at the time. The Soviets probably had the best spy network in the entire world at this time. They had spies in the Far East, and they had spies in Japan. Stalin receives word sometime in October that the Japanese have made a decision on their war aims for the coming year. Stalin had worried that they were going to, because they were part of the you know, German-Italian alliance that was called the Axis. He was worried they were going to stab him in the back, right? Russia looks like they're teetering, so the Japanese come into the Soviet Far East and finish them off. 
He was worried about this. The Japanese had armies in Manchuria, and they had clashed with the Soviets in the late 1930s. So Stalin had hardy Siberian troops stationed there to prevent any sort of a Japanese stab in the back. But his spies now told him that the Japanese were planning on attacking into the Western Pacific, going against the British, the Dutch, and the Americans. So Stalin decided he was free to take those forces away from the Far East, put them on trains, and start sending them west. Siberians, equipped and culturally able to handle the cold, fresh, veterans in many cases. He started them on the trains heading to the west, and for the most part, the Germans were completely unaware that these fresh troops were coming. Because the soldiers in the west, both German and Soviet, were like a couple of punch-drunk fighters. The battalions and the companies and the divisions were all fractions of what their paper strength was. They were worn down to the nub, but at least both sides were worn down kind of equally. Nobody had any inkling that fresh troops were on the way. The Russians seemed desperate, too. They were using more and more strange, weird weapon systems that seemed to point out to their desperation. The Germans write about one that's just mind-boggling. The Germans called them mine dogs. And these were dogs that the Soviets had trained to carry anti-tank mines strapped to their backs. And they were trained to quickly run under German tanks and then the mine would be detonated from remote control. Now, these weren't very effective, but the Germans commented on how any time they saw a dog anywhere near them, they shot it just in case at this point. And it shows you what they thought the level of Russian desperation was. You know, look at, they've scraped the bottom of the barrel. They're using dogs against us now. The mud is so bad right now that very few of the units are able to move effectively, Guderian's tank corps being one of the few. Even though the Germans are at the height of their success, as I said, capturing more than a million 500,000 Russians in the past month or so, you can read the writings of the German generals who are actually at the front, which differ remarkably from the German generals that are back in Germany, with the exception of Franz Halder. Um, And they're talking about, you know, their worries. General Blumentrip wrote in his diary, quote, Most of the commanders are now asking, when are we going to stop? They remembered what happened to Napoleon's army. Most of them began to reread Calencore's grim account of 1812. That had a weighty influence at this critical time in 1941. I can still see von Kluge trudging through the mud from his sleeping quarters to his office and standing before the map with Colin Kor's book in his hand. That went on day after day. End quote. Not just that, the generals at the front are becoming exasperated with orders that are coming from the Supreme Command way back in Germany because they seem to be unattached to the reality on the ground in Russia. For example, one general, after being told that his next objective was to encircle Moscow and capture places that were 250 miles behind Moscow, told Halder, Franz Halder of the German Supreme Command, quote, This is not the month of May, and we are not fighting in France. As if to prove that general statement's correct, in November, the fabled Russian winter, known as General Winter in some Russian quarters because it was almost that much of an ally to the Russian army, arrives. The temperatures plummet. Now, this is a bit of a double-edged sword because the plunging temperatures that go below freezing actually help with the mud. Freeze up the mud. You can now march on the roads again. You know, the trucks can move. The tanks can move. So in that sense, it helps with logistics. But the soldiers themselves are completely unequipped for this. Still wearing their summer uniforms, they write about the temperatures plummeting. On November 13th, they plummet to minus 22 degrees Celsius. This basically grounds the Luftwaffe. The German Air Force, which has swept the Soviet Air Force from the skies, can't run in this kind of weather. The Red Air Force, however, in covered aerodromes that are heated, all of a sudden appears again. They can fly. 
the German Air Force can't. And the German diaries start talking about seeing Russian airplanes and having them attack them for the first time pretty much since Barbarossa started. German tanks and other mechanical equipment often need to have fires lit under their engines simply to thaw them out so they can use them. The ground needs to have bonfires lit on top of it before the soldiers can dig into it with shovels. This is right out of Napoleon, by the way. Talk about the stories being very similar. You can go read about the French troops having to light bonfires on the snow-covered ground to simply get the ground soft enough to dig into. Both sides are worn down to fractions of what they were. They're basically operating on fumes. The Germans are also suffering from something that is not often mentioned. It's a little understood fact about how the German officer corps had suffered up until this point. Many of you listening are military people, and you know how important the middle-level officers are and the non-commissioned officers are to any war effort. In the Roman army, it was the centurions. In most Western armies, it's the sergeants, the lieutenants, for example. These people are your officers and leaders on the ground, on the small size level. They're crucial to you know, your operations. The Germans were losing 500 of these people a week since the start of Barbarossa, which was months ago. Even before the attack on Moscow starts, about a third of all the officers and non-commissioned officers of the German army in the east are either dead or lost forever to serious wounds. This is a huge loss in veteran leadership. The fighting value in what's called the institutional experience of this army is being whittled away through attrition. As one German officer wrote, the German army was, quote, victoring itself to death, end quote. And many have written that the German army, after this experience in 1941, will never be the same again. You cannot replace that level of experience and confidence and know-how. Many of these officers have been trained since, you know, the German army was reconfigured after the First World War ended. The famous 100,000 that were allowed to exist in the wake of the Versailles Treaty were wiped out in this drive toward Moscow. And the troops who had survived this period were trying to figure out ways to not freeze to death in the last stages of this drive toward Moscow, and all sorts of you know, innovative measures were being employed. One of the innovations were that German soldiers were rediscovering the value, even though they were propaganda-laden, of newspapers. One wrote, quote, Newspapers in the boots took up little space and could often be changed. Two sheets of newspaper on a man's back, between vest and shirt, preserved the warmth of the body and were windproof. Newspaper around the belly, newspaper in the trousers, newspaper around the legs, newspaper everywhere that the body required extra warmth. End quote. Now, many of these German soldiers would simply walk around in shock that they were in their summer uniforms with the weather like this. A transport battalion officer wrote, quote, One cannot fundamentally grasp why we've not received any winter things. I believe that the French in 1812 were better equipped against the winter than we are. Surely the men at the top can't be aware of this. Otherwise, they would certainly have helped us. End quote. The pain and suffering that the average German infantryman at this point was enduring is hard to describe. As we said in the last edition of the show, one of those German soldiers had pointed out that pain is international. And what this German soldier was saying was something that was affecting not just him, but his compatriots as well. He writes, his name was Harold Henry, and he writes, quote, My things were gradually saturated as the water soaked through my greatcoat to my body, which was frozen stiff. Everything was dripping, and the weather was freezing. My stomach and bowels were in a state, and cold temperatures dropped off the scale, and the lice 
the frost penetrated the weeping sores of my fingers. He wrote, My gloves were so wet that I could not bear the ache of my infected hands any longer. I could have wept with pain as I bound my useless hand with a handkerchief. My contorted face was streaked with tears, but I was in a trance-like state. I plodded forward, babbling incoherently, feeling as though I were asleep and reliving a nightmare. All the others were in the same state as I was. There was shooting, and one threw oneself into the snow, formed a half-circle, made ready, and waited for orders. It was a cycle of non-ending misery. Standing hour after hour in the open, wet and frozen, with hands wrapped, lashed all the time by the unbelievable weather, our boot soles froze, sticking to the ground. We were wet through, and had to simply stand, 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 wait, march a little bit, and stand again. A young tanker wrote, you know, a man who drove a tank, quote, We were all dog-tired. The young men slept in any position whenever they got the chance. For weeks we only got out of the tank for minutes at a time. Our breath condensed on the metal so that everything you touched inside the tank was covered with ice. It was minus 40 degrees to minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit outside. Most of the time even the rations were frozen. At night we had to start up the tanks every two hours to keep the engines from freezing up. End quote. Folks, imagine having to live outside, in holes in the ground, in these conditions, which is what a lot of the infantry had to do, with your feet wrapped in newspaper. Now, there are a lot of stories about German soldiers evicting Russian peasants from their homes in order to take over their abodes, which, of course, left those Russian peasants at the mercy of the elements themselves. German soldier Josef Deck writes about living in minus 40-degree temperature. He writes, quote, Bread had to be chopped with hatchets to make it smaller. First aid packs froze hard as wood. Gasoline froze. Optical instruments failed. And the skin on one's hands remained frozen to rifles when you pulled your hand away. The wounded froze to death within minutes in the snow. Only a few people these days had the fortune to thaw out a Russian body to get his clothes. End quote. Now, Many in the German high command assumed that, yes, things were bad for the German troops on the ground, but that they were equally bad for the enemy, that these weather conditions affected both sides the same. But that wasn't the case. Not only were the Russians better equipped to handle this, more culturally in tune to the weather, their equipment was built for this. Their tanks were built to handle this weather. They used a certain kind of oil that didn't freeze up as easily. Their guns didn't jam as easily. And their clothing was ready for the winter. They not only could handle the winter better, they did something the Germans thought was impossible in these kind of temperatures. They actually attacked in them. I've often wondered what it was like for the people inside tanks when they're rumbling around, you know, thinking that nothing is wrong, and then all of a sudden the tank is hit by a shell. But there are accounts of what happened to German soldiers in just this situation and how you could be driving your tank one minute toward Moscow and then all of a sudden find yourself outside the tank in a state of shock. German tanker Peter Pekel writes about just such an occasion where he says he was inside the tank doing his normal work and then one second later sitting in the snow in shock outside in minus 14 degree temperatures after his tank was cut in two by a Russian shell. He wrote, quote, The commander of the tank in front of me has taken a bullet in the head and his brains are running down his face. He's running around in grotesque circles, crying, Mother! Mother! Finally, and almost mercifully, he's hit again by shrapnel and falls to the ground. Then the German tanker sees the Russians coming, and he begins to panic. Quote, Oh, God, 
Only four days ago, I saw the dead of another one of our companies. I saw the poked-out eyes, the severed genitals, the horrible, tortured, distorted faces. Anything but that. So you can see what's happening to German morale. That the horrificness of the fighting in the East has gotten to them. The Russians often said that if you fight the German, attack with the bayonet, because they don't want to get anywhere near you. They much prefer to shoot from a distance. And when they saw the Russians coming, knowing these sorts of atrocities that they were beginning to pay the Germans back with, you can read the panic in the writing. No German soldier wanted to fall into the hands of the Russians because they knew very well that they had done enough bad stuff to the Russians to deserve the sort of payback that were becoming legendary stories among the Wehrmacht. One German soldier even noted the peculiar nature of bodies that are killed in this kind of freezing temperature, and that you could sit there in almost a state of shock and watch steam just pouring off these recently killed bodies. On November 7th, Stalin defiantly decides to go forward with the traditional Russian Revolution commemorative parade in Red Square. Many of his generals had told him not to do this, that Red Square was within the range of German bombers, that the parade should be canceled this year, but he took it upon himself to have the parade anyway as not only a boost to morale, but as a way of showing the Germans that you didn't screw up our normal schedule at all. Even though Moscow was evacuated and camouflaged to resist German attack, the troops and equipment that are normally a part of these parades continue to be marched right down Red Square, right past Lenin's now deserted tomb, and Stalin had them just continue marching right out of the city, right to the front. It was so close. And he was overheard to have growled, quote, If they want a war of extermination, they shall have one. Meaning the Germans. And the war of extermination, by the way, didn't just mean that Stalin was going to punish the Germans as part of his effort to throw them out of the country. Everyone was going to pay a price. On November 17th, Stalin ordered the Red Army to destroy and, quote, burn to ashes, end quote, all houses and farms for up to 40 miles behind the German lines. He never once thought about what that would mean to the people whose homes that happened to be and how it was the only protection from those cold temperatures at all. Stalin was going to deny the Germans any chance to make use of those homes and that equipment and any food that might be there themselves. Anthony Beaver, an author who wrote about this period, wrote, quote, Never did a population suffer so much from both sides in a war meaning the Russian population. On November 23rd, German troops are only 35 miles from Moscow. On November 27th, German troops are only 19 miles from Moscow, and they report that they can see the muzzle flashes of the anti-aircraft batteries operating in the Kremlin through their binoculars. Some patrols have even penetrated into the suburbs of Moscow and managed to see the spires of the Kremlin itself. On December 2nd, German patrols are just five miles from the Kremlin. On December 4th, the temperatures fall to minus 31 degrees on the Russian front. German forces evacuate Kalinin, 100 miles to the northwest of Moscow. And this is where you start to see how nerves are frayed. The German generals do this as a strategic move. They see it as a, you know, helping the situation on the front. Hitler, though, is furious at this. He sees any withdrawal as a weakness on the part of his generals. He countermands the order makes the troops stay where they were, and starts to show, you know, what his future behavior on this front is going to be. He, like Stalin, has some sort of a visceral opposition to any withdrawal of any kind, as though it shows some sort of weakness, even if it's militarily the right thing to do. 
By December 5th, the weather, the savage fighting, the supply problems, and the depletion of the German fighting strength causes the German offensive finally to grind to a halt. General von Bock, commander of Army Group Center, admits that there are no longer any chances of any, quote, strategic success, end quote, this year. He says that his men were exhausted, that there were more than 100,000 cases of frostbite in his command alone, which almost exceeded the combat casualties. He writes that desertions and executions for deserting are rising, as is the suicide rate. The temperature was minus 13 degrees Fahrenheit, and the Germans were assuming that the Soviets were just in the same sort of dire straits that they were. And right as von Bock is writing this, all of a sudden, the storm in front of Moscow breaks. The storm being those fresh Siberian troops from the east that the Germans basically were unaware of. Appearing out of nowhere in their white camouflage uniforms with special oil for their weapons, often attacking on skis in their warm boots and headgear, they arrive with hidden supplies of the newest Red Army tanks and planes that were hoarded and stockpiled for just this counteroffensive. Partisan units behind the German lines coordinate their attacks at the same time and cause havoc in the German rear at the same time the Germans are finding out that these fresh troops are in front of them. Soviet sword-wielding cavalry that looks like something right out of the 1812 wars with Napoleon charge through the forest. Ski troops often appear right into the German lines out of the mists. They often attack at night to nullify the Luftwaffe when indeed the Luftwaffe can even fly in these sorts of conditions. The Germans, who were tense and on edge before this happened, are thrown back in confusion. By December 7th, this Soviet counteroffensive against Army Group Center succeeds in breaking through the German lines in many places. The Germans are retreating in hasty withdrawals at best, sometimes just fleeing in a disorganized way. They're ill-prepared, frostbitten, forced to abandon a lot of their heavy equipment that's immobilized by the sub-zero temperatures. On December 10th, Heinz Guderian, German tank general, records the temperature is an astounding minus 63 degrees Fahrenheit. The Germans and their attack on Moscow for the year 1941 are done. And as if to seal the deal, to demonstrate an almost death wish, the day after Guderian writes that the temperatures are minus 63 degrees on the Eastern Front, on December 11th, Adolf Hitler's Germany makes maybe their second greatest mistake of the Third Reich. They declare war on the United States of America, who only a couple of days before had been attacked at Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. When Hitler makes this announcement, the Reichstag erupts in cheers at the news. They aren't the only ones cheering, by the way. Cheers also erupt in Great Britain and in the Soviet Union. Everybody seemed to think that war with the USA and Germany is a good thing. Hitler and the German high command were laughing at what they considered to be the ludicrous production elements that their experts gave of U.S. industrial capabilities. Those estimates turned out to be, if anything, underestimates. And from this date on, the Germans are fighting many enemies on many fronts. In the east, they're fighting a Soviet enemy 
that has just held them and thrown them back from the gates of Moscow and is getting stronger every day and only has to worry about fighting one enemy. The Germans now are fighting many. Nevertheless, by the war's end, seven out of every eight Germans who die in the Second World War will die fighting the Soviets. By December 15th, Stalin orders all the functions of the Soviet state to relocate back to Moscow, sure that the threat to his capital has been removed. On December 18th, Hitler accepts the resignation of Field Marshal von Brauchtisch and now assumes personal command of the army and operations on the Eastern Front. He also sacks Army Group Center's commander, Field Marshal von Bach, replaces him with Field Marshal von Kluge, On December 19th, Hitler orders that there should be no withdrawal by the German army and that it should stand and fight where it is. He believes that any retreat would cause his armies to fall apart just the same way Napoleon's did. Author Anthony Beaver writes, quote, Hitler was convinced that if his troops held out through the winter, they would break the historical curse on the invaders of Russia, end quote. What Hitler seemed not to realize is that it was very possible that he and the Third Reich were already done. Coming up in the next installment in this series, the famous Battle of Stalingrad. Maybe the worst battle in terms of human suffering in all history. Also, the creator of the majority of those Soviet bone fields we talked about in Ghosts of the Ostfront Part 1. Also, the turning point year, 1943, when the German Wehrmacht finally is defeated in its last major offensives on the Eastern Front and begin the long trek backwards towards Berlin. All that, and more, in Ghosts of the Ostfront, Part 3. Feeling guilty yet? A buck a show! It's all we ask! <laughs>